continue our series uh, about the mighty God uh, that we serve. And uh, we've explored a lot of different things, uh, but today we're actually going to step into the throne room of God. And so uh, that is uh, an exciting thing. Um, and I believe really by stepping into the throne room of God, we're going to see something amazing about the mighty God that we serve. And so uh, in the Bible, we actually have uh, two. Um, we have two glimpses into the throne room of God. And so uh, we're going to look at the first one as we get started today. And so this is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And so um, if you'll stand out of respect for God's word, we're just going to read just three verses this morning. And so this is Isaiah chapter 6. And in verse 1 it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." Let's stop there and we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Lord, as we think about prayer, Lord, we are reminded uh, that we also step into the throne room, that our prayer requests are given to you there in heaven and that you take them and use them as you see fit. And so, Lord, as we uh, stop this morning and we reflect on your holiness we're reminded that as Isaiah stood in the throne room, that he saw these seraphim, these angels calling out, worshiping you and praising you and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so, Lord, today we ask that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that you, we would see you again this morning as someone who is separate someone who is separate from sin and evil and un, un, the uncleanness of the world, someone that is holy, someone is, who is righteous. And so, Lord, as we meet together again, as we, as we stop and we think about the mighty God that we serve, we pray that you would increase and that in turn that we would see who we are as your humble servants. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the past several weeks, uh, we have learned a lot about the mighty God that we serve. And so we've looked at uh, some of his nature. And so we looked at the fact that God is a spirit, uh, but that he's not a force. He's not like a, a, a power uh, that turns on the lights, uh, that he is a person, that he has a personality, that he has likes and dislikes. We also uh, spent a couple of weeks looking at the unity and trinity of God and uh, how amazing uh, that whole thing is. We also looked at some of his natural attributes. Uh, we looked at the fact that he is omniscient. We saw that he is all-powerful. And when we looked at God as creator... Uh, that when he spoke, things came to be. And so uh, there was uh, his power behind that, as well as his sovereign power.
power behind that uh, because we see that everything he created was what? Very good. It was perfect from top to bottom, from left to right. All that he created was very good. We also looked at the fact that he is eternal. And so we remembered that uh, he had no beginning and that he'll have no end. That all in creation has been created, but God has not been created. For God is the unmade maker. And so we looked at some of those natural attributes. His eternal state, his omniscience. We also looked at his, uh, his presence is, is everywhere. When we talked about the fact that he is a spirit. And so today we're going to look at uh, something that is a little bit, I, I don't want to say different, but different than what we've covered so far. Uh, because today we're going to be looking at his moral attributes. One of his moral attributes and so one of his moral attributes is the fact that he is holy. And so we're going to learn something new about him. And really we're going to uh, look at something that is really out of this world. And I don't mean out of this world as in crazy, but actually out of this world. Because it takes place in um, a realm that is outside of this world. And so look at verse 1 uh, with me as we get started this morning. And so it's, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. All right, let's go ahead and stop there. Let me point out a couple of things here. And so we have uh, King Uzziah. And so uh, when is this taking place? Well, King Uzziah died of leprosy in 739 B.C. So that is quite a long time ago. And so uh, this is when Isaiah uh, starts his prophetic ministry. And so he is just beginning. And so that we can, we can uh, uh, put a date on that, and that would be 739 B.C. And then notice what he says. He says, I saw the Lord. Now, how did Isaiah see the Lord? How did he step into the throne room of God? Well, God took Isaiah out of his physical body and, and took him as a spirit into the throne room of God because the spirit because the throne room of God exists outside of this physical world. Matter of fact, we see the same thing happen to John. And that's the, actually the other time uh, that we see someone stand, into the uh, stand in the throne room of God. And so this is what John says. And so notice here, this is Revelations 4.2. This is John's account of stepping in the throne room of God. And notice what he says. He says, at once I was in the Spirit. So God took John out of his physical form and uh, took him as a spirit up into the, heaven, the, the heavenly realm, and he stood within that spiritual realm, in that, that throne room of God. And so as we continue there, um, uh, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And we're going to stop there for now. We're going to look at the rest of John's account a little bit later on. But just to kind of give us an idea of what is going on here. And so here we have that uh, Isaiah has, has been really taken out of his life, his physical life here. And he's given an opportunity to be able to see things that normally we can't see. Because as we look today, we don't see a spiritual war happening. We don't see angels fighting or demons fighting. We don't see those types of things. And yet, Isaiah, as well as John, saw those things. They stood in heaven and they saw 
that throne room. And so notice in verse 2, that is, that is Isaiah 6-2, notice what Isaiah sees. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So I want to point out a couple of details um, that Isaiah sees, and it's actually the same thing that, that John sees. Now, John words it a little bit differently. Isaiah calls these seraphim, all right? And so notice that word seraphim there. What are seraphim? Well, seraphim are the, uh, one of the orders of the angelic creatures similar to the living creatures that John talks about. So John doesn't use the word seraphim. Instead, in John's account in Revelation chapter 4, he says living creatures. And he describes something that is, is really interesting there, something that I'm sure uh, symbolizes uh, something uh, there in Revelations. And uh, he, he pictures them as, as living creatures uh, with different faces and made up different ways and uh, something that I'm sure um, to be pulled out, I, sometimes I think about these accounts and I think about how difficult it must have been for Isaiah and for John to put in human words what they saw in heaven. Because really those are outside of probably our vocabulary, some of the things that they saw. And so when you read through John's account, uh, there are some things that just uh, you just kind of read and you go, wow, that that's, doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, because I think John is just struggling to communicate what he saw in heaven. And he's doing the very best he can uh, to communicate that. But there are two things. No, there is one thing that is true in both of these accounts, and that is that there was these beings that had six wings. They had six wings. And so the question might be this morning, why six wings? Now, again, both in the account from Isaiah and the account from John, they both give these living beings six wings. And so why six wings? Well, a little bit, uh, we're told a little bit in this Isaiah account, so notice, with two, this is these winged creatures, these seraphim, with two he covered his face. Now what does that symbolize? That symbolizes the fact that what they did is they protected themselves from God's glory. That as they're there worshiping, they have two that cover their face in reverence to God. And so God's glory is, is so bright that they use two of those to cover their face to, um, because they dare not look directly at God's glory. Then we also see that two of them cover their feet. And so notice again there in verse 2, it says, And two he covered his feet. Now what does that represent? Well, that represents humility. That represents humility. They cover their feet, and so they really show, really in the hierarchy here, we have God, and he's seated upon the throne, and then we have these angels, these living creatures that are worshiping. They dare not look at God's glory, but at the same time, they are humble as they cover their feet. And then notice with what they do, the other two wings. And so that last part says, and the other two wings... He flew, and so the angels were at work for the Lord. With two, they flew. Now, John MacArthur says this, 
four wings related to worship emphasizes the priority of praise. And so John, uh, John MacArthur makes this, um, this assumption or, or, or this idea as he kind of looks over what these wings were meant for. And he says, you know what? Four of them were about praise. That they guarded themselves from, from God's glory. That they covered their feet in humility towards God. And then one set of them was actually in service. And so he points to the fact that how much we are to praise God. And, and that is exactly what we see happening in the throne room. And so look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we see something very similar um, said, uh, very similar uh, from John's account. And so this is John's account. This is in Revelations 4 8. This is when John is standing in the throne room of God. And in verse 8, it says this And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we see two things that happen, both in Isaiah's account. And and, uh, again, what is the time difference between these two accounts? We're talking about... 2,600 years later, John has another opportunity to step into the throne room of God. And when John steps into the throne room of God, what does he see? He sees these six-winged creatures, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so, something that stands out to me that in the two instances, the two occasions that we get to see people actually stand in the throne room of God, that we see creatures, angels, living creatures worshiping the Lord saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now, whenever you see things repeated three times, that gives some importance to that. And so the fact that we see this happen three times points to the fact that uh, there is something happening. That, uh, this threefold means that there's an emphasis on God's holiness. Now let me put into perspective here so that we don't lose sight of what is happening here. This is not like a red carpet event in Hollywood. All right, And so these angels are not worshiping God because what he has achieved. All right? So when we think about sometimes worship that happens on the human level, oftentimes it's because of what someone has achieved that we attribute some type of praise to that person. But that's not true when it comes to God. God is not being worshipped in heaven because he has achieved something. Instead, God's being worshipped in heaven because of who he is, not because of his achievements. His achievements only point to the fact of who he is. And so when we think of God as a good God and what he has done for us, and the fact that he has saved sinners, 
We don't worship him because he has saved sinners. We worship him because of who he is. And so those six winged creatures call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This leads me to believe that both Isaiah as well as John, as they stood in the throne room of God, there was something that struck them as very important. And so they listed it three times to show the importance. And that is, holy, holy, holy. I think both Isaiah as well as John, that that made an impact in their life. That as they stood there in the throne room of God and they saw those angels and they saw that throne and they were able to picture that throne room, they walked away thinking, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And really I think that the number one thing that God would want us to know about him, and, and obviously there's many things that God has revealed about himself to us, But I think the one thing that God wants us to know about him is that he is holy. That he is holy. So the question might be, what is holiness? If God wants us to know that he is holy and if the angels are in heaven and and John's account says day and night, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What is it that is true about God? What is it that we need to know about God's holiness? Holiness in the Bible means separation from all that is common or unclean. Matter of fact, we get this idea from from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were uh, different instruments that were only supposed to be used in worship. They were supposed to be used in the temple. They were set aside as holy. They were not to be used outside of the temple. They were not to be used for different things. They were not common instruments. They were holy instruments. They were sanctified instruments used to worship the Lord. They were set apart for the Lord. And so what is holiness in respect of God? Holiness means not only that he is separate from all that is unclean and evil, but also that he is positively pure and thus distinct from all others. That word holiness doesn't necessarily tell you what it is. Holiness tells you what it's not. In the same way, if I could illustrate this, in the same way that the word healthy does not describe what you are, but instead what you're not. To say that someone is healthy means that you have an absence of illness. To say that you're healthy means you're not sick. It also means that you have energy, that you have, uh, I don't know, power, that, that you have strength. And, and so to be healthy means you're not sick and that you have energy. And so that word healthy actually describes what we're not. We're not sick and we're not, uh, and then, and we're not drained of our energy. Therefore, holiness is the absence of evil in the presence of righteousness. And so when we think about who God is, 
God is not evil. He is separated from that. Matter of fact, oftentimes we think, what? God can do anything, anything, anything. My God can do anything. But there is some things that God cannot do because they go against who he is. And one of those things is God cannot do evil. For God is holy. He is separated from that. As a matter of fact, that holiness points to the fact that not only is there an absence of evil, but there is a presence of righteousness. John puts it this way. This is 1 John 1, 5. This is a message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. That is the idea of holiness. And in him is no darkness at all. That's the idea of evil as John pictures that. That means that God cannot be evil or commit evil deeds. For the one true God is perfect in all he does. To commit evil would go against his moral nature. It should bring joy to our hearts, knowing that the God that we serve can be trusted, that he is not a trickster, He's not a con artist. He has no plan to pull the rug out from under us in the future. For God is holy, and as John puts it, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so the fact that God is holy gives us hope, brings us joy. But it also brings another emotion. And the next emotion we'll see is portrayed in Isaiah's dilemma. And so Isaiah is standing in the throne room of God, and, and, and he is highlighting this idea that God is holy by using holy three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And as he's standing there in the throne room, look at verse 4. Notice there in verse 4, And the foundations of the thre- threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So some amazing things are happening here. And in verse 5, notice, notice Isaiah's response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so notice his very first response, woe is me. You know what's going through Isaiah's head as he stands in the throne room of God? He's thinking about those times when, when people have stood in the, in the throne room of earthly kings, and they have come at the wrong time, they have come in the wrong way. And you know what would happen if you came into the throne room of an earthly king at this time in the wrong way or at the wrong time? You would be executed. And so Isaiah here, as he stands in the throne room of God, and he begins to think about God's holiness and the fact that he is not holy, he begins to fear, woe is me. He begins to think about earthly kings and the fact that when people would go into the throne room of earthly kings, they would be executed. 
if they did not come in the right way, and he begins to realize he has not come in the right way, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't help but wonder if he uses that word, unclean lips, because he's thinking about the fact that those angels are there, those seraphims, and they're praising God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he begins to think to himself, oh, how I've used my own lips. My my own lips are unworthy to praise you. My, My own lips are unclean. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And really begins to think to himself, the only thing that you really deserve is of pure lips to worship you. And, and so we see there's a dilemma here. And really because God is, is holy, he's separate from all other creation. That there's a, there's a moral standard that God has that, that we don't have. And of course, after the fall, we are sinners and we are distant from God, that, that there can't truly be fellowship there because of that distance between a holy God and a sinful man. And so that, that holiness of God meant that sinners have to be separated from Him unless a way can be found for them to also be holy. So think about that. That the fact that God is is holy and and that He is here and and that we are sinners and and that we we are so, so far removed that the only way that we could have fellowship with God is if there was some way in God's holiness that He could make us holy and righteous just like he is. And then we could have fellowship with him. Because again, that, that, that moral standing of holiness means that he cannot fellowship with evil. He cannot commit evil. He cannot look upon evil. He is separate from evil and from sin. Jesus Christ puts it this way. As he reflects on the holiness of God, and he says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, and we think about that, there's no way that we could be perfect. In the Old Testament, they, they put it this way. This is 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. And so when you think about God being holy, that that moral attribute of God, that He in His holiness is completely separate from us. Paul says this, that is true about us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that truly we have been created to bring Him glory, but we fall short of that day after day after day because of our sin. He is separated from us because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness. However, God did provide a way through His holiness. 
He provided a way through Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, that is God, that, this is God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What is, what is Paul saying here? What Paul is saying is before God we are justified. That before God we are righteous. Now how do we become righteous? How can it, how can it be that we have fellowship with a holy God? Well, that's because Christ lived in our place. When he came to earth, he lived under the law, but he never once broke the law. That he lived a perfect and righteous place, or a perfect and righteous life in our place, so that we would not have to live that holy life. So the Bible talks about that, that, that exchange that happens, that, that, that here Jesus Christ, he, he lived in my place, and he died in my place, and he came back to life in my place. And when I put my faith and trust in him, there's this idea of, of an exchange that my sin, my unrighteousness is placed upon him on the cross, and, and his perfect life is, is placed upon me, and, and now as God sees me, he doesn't see my sin because that's placed upon Jesus Christ. Instead, what he sees is he sees God's, or Christ's righteousness. Now, I can have a relationship with God. Though God is holy, which means that he is separate from evil, separate from sin. Even though he is holy and righteous, there is a way for me as a sinner to have fellowship with a holy and righteous God. And that is through Jesus Christ. And so the last thing we want to look at this morning is, is just some application. We want to apply this because this is, this is such an important thing to think about when you think about who God is and the fact that He is holy. And, and there is, I believe, there is really, uh, both in John's account and in Isaiah's account, that there is priority put towards this attribute, this moral attribute of God in the fact that they both repeat it three times. That in heaven, they're saying that the angels, day and night, these living creatures, day and night, they never stop to cease. They always say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so there has to be something very, very important to this. And so what can we take and apply to our lives about this theology that we have just learned, the fact that God is holy? If it is true that God is holy, which means that he is separated from all unclean and evil, and that he is positively pure and distant from all others, the proper view of the holiness of God should make believers sensitive to their own sin, just as Isaiah. And so if we really believe that God is holy, 
And that he is separated from all uncleanness and all evil. And we think about God's holiness when we begin to think about our own lives. And the fact that we're sinners. That should move us to reply just as Isaiah did. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in America, in California, in the midst of people of unclean lips. And so the very first takeaway this morning is that if we really believe that God is holy, then that should magnify the things that we do wrong, that we want to let God change in our life. Because we realize that God has done all of this for us, that he has made us righteous and holy. Therefore, why should we continue to walk in the flesh? Why should we continue to let sin have dominion over our life? Peter puts it this way. He says this. This is 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. For as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so Peter says this, you know what, I, we, we, oftentimes in, 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 our, in our fallen condition as Christians, we can be tempted to say this. We can be tempted to think this. I'm a Christian. I don't have to live under the law. I have been saved by grace. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. But I don't believe that is good theology. I think better theology is to say that God is holy. And though I am not holy now, one day I'll be sanctified. Although I'm not holy now, I want to allow God to change my life so that I could have better fellowship with the Lord and have better fellowship with God. This is how John puts it. Notice how John puts it here. He says, but if you walk in the light as he is in the light. And again, that, that idea of light there is that idea of purity. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. And so our desire is to walk with the Lord, not walk in the flesh, but really allow the fruits of the Spirit to work through our lives. So we walk not in the flesh. Instead, we walk in the light as He is in the light. And so sometimes the debate in the Christian life is this. What is acceptable in the Christian life? But I don't think that's the right question. I think the right question should be this, what is holy? What is it that God would do? What is it that God would want me to do? Instead of asking the question, what is acceptable? What can I get by with? Instead, we ask the question, 
what is the holy approach? What is the avenue that is separated from this sin, this uncleanness? What is connected to God's righteousness? Sometimes, as we begin to think of in this life, you know, there's no way that I could ever be holy. Therefore, why even try? It's because we worship a holy God. In heaven right now, in the throne room right now, I expect that the seraphim, these living creatures, are worshiping God on the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They are covering their face. They are covering their feet. They are doing the work of praising God. And yet, here in our state, we think, well, what's the big deal? Why have we been saved by faith? Our, uh, our verse our verse for this year, Ephesians 2.10. But before we get there, let's think about this idea of grace. For have we been saved by grace to continue in the old man? And I would say no. And this is what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So it is not up to me to be holy. Instead, God has made me holy. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, so that I may not boast of what I have done, but instead my boasting is in Jesus Christ. My boasting is in the Lord. And then the very next verse says this. This is why we have been saved by grace. This is why we have been saved by faith through grace, or grace by faith. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we have not been saved by grace to continue in our sin and our flesh. We have been saved by faith, and saved by grace through faith, so that we might serve the Lord. And so as, as we stop this morning, and this is, really the, this is really the application, if God is holy... His, his moral attribute is the fact that he is, he is holy, he is up here. That, that, that there is no evil and there is no uncleanness and there is only righteousness. He does everything in an upright way. He is separate from all else. And I am down here and I am a sinner. But, because I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I am justified. He sees me as righteous. I'm justified before him. That should change my life. That it's no longer, I'll just continue to do whatever I want to do. But instead, my holy, holy, holy God has saved me. And therefore, my desire, though I will not be perfect in this life, my desire is to honor my holy, holy, holy God in heaven. Because truly I have been designed for his glory. And can I bring God glory by living in the flesh? I cannot.
but can I bring God glory by giving him honor, by saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit? And I can. And so if God is holy and we are sinners justified through Jesus Christ, we don't ask the question, what can I get away with? But instead, what does God desire of me as a holy God? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we stop this morning and, and we, we think about God's or your holiness, Lord, we think about the fact that you are separated from, from all uncleanness, that there is no darkness, no evil, that you're not a, some type of trickster or a con artist, that, that we're not in for a big surprise one day because you are a good and upright, you are a righteous God. You do everything correct. There are no mistakes for you are perfect. And that both in Isaiah's account and in John's account, we see creatures, angels in heaven worshiping you, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And though that brings joy to our hearts, it also brings an amount of fear because we realize that we are not holy. But thank you, Lord, for making a way through your holiness. Thank you for allowing Christ or sending Christ to live in our place, to live under the law so that we might be righteous before you. Thank you that he died in our place to take upon himself our sins, to come back to life in the resurrection to show us that one day we will have a new body, one day we will be sanctified, one day we will be without sin. And so, Lord, we are not there yet. Yes, currently before you, you we are justified but Lord, you are still working in our lives. You are still helping us each and every day to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not take that for granted, that our desire in this life would not be to live in the flesh, to walk in the flesh, but instead that our desire would be to walk in the Spirit to live by faith. And so, Lord, help us not ask the question, what can I get by with in this life? But instead, may we ask the question, what would give you glory in this life? As we think about your holiness, in Jesus' name, amen.